Good afternoon. Hope you guys are having a lovely Sunday and thank you for tuning into the show. We've got another special one for you today. Um, I'd like to introduce Prinny Anderson, one of the founding members of Coming to the Table, and her kind of colleague and cousin, uh, Gail Jessup White, who's a, a genealogist and a researcher, and both of them will kind of tell you a little bit more about themselves. But as you know, we've been, Donnie and I have been exploring kind of for the past month about the, the kind of positive impact you can have when descendants of an enslaver and descendants of the people that that family enslaved come together and meet one another. So that's what's happened with both Prinny and Gail, but they have that added little extra dimension that they are genetically connected to each other as well. So Gail and Prinny, welcome, welcome to the show. Like I said, Donnie and I have look, been looking forward to having the pair of you on, so we're really excited. And I thought I would start with you first, Prinny, if you could just tell the audience a little bit about what coming to the table is, what its ethos was, and kind of the, that, the idea that came together to, to bring it to fruition. Sure. Thank you, Brian and Donya. It's a real pleasure to be here with you and also to spend some time with my cousin Gail. Um, coming to the table was an idea that came out of the controversy within the descendants of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings uh, as to what that relationship had really consisted of. And my cousin, Susan Hutchison, we met a lot of Hemings descendants and my cousin said, you know, this makes a really powerful platform from which to talk about slavery and its legacies and then racism and how we address racism in this country. And um, she found a Hairston descendant working at Eastern Mennonite University who went to, you know, the Mennonites are a peace building faith. And they were very excited about the idea of peace building across racial lines. That was not something they'd tackled before. So we had the first gathering in 2006. And out of that has come an organization whose um, vision is for a more racially just United States. And what we offer are um, support, tools, education, and leadership in bringing people together to address racism, race, and social justice. And within that organization, uh, one of the working groups is called Linked Descendants, which I coordinate. And that group supports people descended from enslavers and people descended from folks whose ancestors were held in slavery and supports their research to find one another, their research to understand the impact that their heritage has had on them, and then their uh, steps to reach out, find one another and make connections, con uh, have conversation, and um, certainly for the descendants of enslavers, give thought to what kind of amends or uh, restorative action they would like to take in conjunction with the people they're connected to through slavery. Thank you. And Gail, um, if you'd like to talk a little bit about um, what was the what was the impetus behind you kind of starting this part of your genealogical journey, kind of reaching out to, I guess, one, descendants of people who who enslaved parts of your family, and then two, to find out that they were you were actually related to them. So <clears throat> first of all, it's great to be here this afternoon. Happy Sunday, everybody. Um, it's good to meet you and Danya and Prinny. It's always good to see you. Um, my story is very long and complicated, and um, you're welcome to read about it because I'm working on a book um, published um, next year by HarperCollins. And so an imprint of HarperCollins called Amistad. So I'm excited about that because for me, this awesome. is a 50-year journey. Um, Prinny and I did not grow up knowing each other. Prinny and I met maybe 10 years ago. And 
it was as a result of my lifelong pursuit following an oral history connecting my family to Thomas Jefferson. I grew up in Washington, DC. I learned this when I was a teenager, sort of stumbled upon it. It's nothing that our family talked about. I overheard it in an eavesdropped conversation. I was eavesdropping, listening to my dad, talking to my oldest sister. And I was curious about it naturally. I'm a black kid growing up in Washington, DC. And I hear that I'm descended from the third president of the United States and the principal author of the Declaration of Independence. Um, when we were kids, we weren't taught that Thomas Jefferson owned people. We were taught that Jefferson freed people, <laughs> that he fought the British, um, that he wrote the Declaration, that he became president. And there's a long list of his accomplishments, but those are the two greatest ones that we were taught about. Not that he enslaved people. We weren't taught about Sally Hemings. And so I made it my lifelong pursuit and was called by the ancestors to come to Virginia from the safe haven of Washington, the original chocolate city. Amen. <laughs> and ultimately ended up working at Monticello, which is in fact where my ancestors were enslaved. And my job is, um, um, I'm not a genealogist, although I appreciate being anointed as one. Um, I am a, a journalist in reform and a public relations uh, professional at this point. So my job at Monticello, my title is public relations and community engagement officer. And my job is to reach out to the community. However, my calling is to share with people stories of those who have remained voiceless for hundreds of years. Yes. My calling is to speak of the enslaved men and women who toiled under, uh, gosh, the most onerous of circumstances. And in spite of that, that oppressive condition, people found joy. And we think it's tough now with COVID. We <laughs> mm. can see light at the end of the tunnel. These people had to see light in the future among their descendants. They had to imagine a Gail Jessup White some years from now, because that was the hope they had. And it's those people for whom I speak. It's those people who called me to Virginia, a place where my dad, who was a white looking man, would not bring his black family because he feared for their safety. It's their voices, it's those ancestors who brought me and connected me to Prinny so that she and I can talk today about the relationship that we developed. So for me, yes, I work at Monticello. I have a job, it's a good job, I like it. But the greater purpose is this calling to share this story so that we can all understand the strength of our ancestors and that we hold that strength within us. It's almost become a cliche, but I, I, I love it. We stand on their shoulders. We stand on their shoulders. Well, I have to say that um, I paid a visit to Monticello with my siblings a couple of years ago, right before the Sally Hemings room was opened. And yes. they were kind enough, once I explained my connection, they, they were very kind enough to let us take a look. I was impressed by the, the tour guide that we have. I, I can't remember her name for the life of me. I want to call her Rachel. I had never known that they that it was enslaved people who cleared pretty much the top third of that mountain where the house sits. Oh, yeah. I, I thought that That's was a mountain. That was a mountain. Mm -hmm. And Thomas Jefferson, pretty, he's a five times. You're five times as well, right? No, four times. So, so Thomas, that's just because you're a little older than I am. And I have some funny <laughs> generations. I just, I just tease you. So Jefferson was my five times great-grandfather. He had, through one of his great-great-grandsons, not through Sally Hemings, he wanted to build a home on that mountain. So he had enslaved people flatten that mountain so he could build his house there. I want you to imagine how much work that was. And people didn't get credit for it. And it wasn't until recently. Well, no, I don't want to say that. That might not be true. Over the past several years, our guides have reminded people that Thomas Jefferson didn't build that house. Thomas Jefferson didn't clear that mountain. The people he owned 
and I want to emphasize that, people he owned cleared that mountain and built that house. If you come to Monticello, on the west side of the building, Prina, you know this spot, you can see the imprint of children's fingers in the bricks mm. because children, children made those bricks. Children were sent to work when they were around 10 years old. Yeah, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be able to do that. But you, you know, we don't know what we would be able to do. We don't no, know. Right now, the way my mind is, um, I can honestly say, I, I have a, so I, I listen to you and how you really, you um, actually both of you, when we were talking earlier, as far as printing was concerned before we got on and then you now and how you really connect with your, uh, with your ancestors. I connect with them like you do. Mm -hmm. And I connect to them in a way where they can drain me. So there are certain places that I don't want to even live. Like I don't want to live by a, a cemetery, for example, because I feel like that door that I've allowed to be open will also, you know, people who are not even related to me will be like, hey, can you find this person for me? Wow. Can you can you connect me to that's literally how how much I connect to the point where I will sit in my room and I know this sounds crazy and, and but my fans are used to you know the fans are used to me they know I'm got a loose wire anyway but <laughs> the the bottom line is is that they will I can sit in my room and I will say I'm gonna need y'all to leave me alone I'm gonna shut it all off like I have to literally go there because if I don't it yeah so i would not i think i would break down if i saw little fingers and bricks and i would not be able to take that so what are your what are they trying to get you to do what are they saying to you because it's interesting that they drain you rather than fortify you honey they want me to do everything so like you we're their voice. Um, I, and I know a lot of genealogists that are in that way and we're their voice. They have so much to say and so much that they want to get out that it can be overwhelming. So for me, I have a two times great grandmother who was enslaved by a really, really bad guy, really bad guy. He was the guy who beat Charles Sumner on the Senate floor. That was her brother. Come to find out that was her brother. So yeah, I'm I'm a part of that line of people. And when I tell you she Hamilton, came Hamilton, huh? Hamilton, I can't remember his name from uh, No Preston Brooks. Preston Brooks, that's it. Preston Brooks. Thank yeah. You. Mm -hmm. He was he was, you know, and, and the thing is is that they she was forceful in letting me know it's Preston that you need to learn about so you can learn the rest of history. Mm-hmm. You know, she pointed and she did that not just to me, she did it to Brian too. So it's just like, cause just how you guys just sat here and talked about how you and the, the three of you are connected in like four ways. Brian and I are connected in seven. Wow. So just like together, since Preston Brooks and the business with Charles Sumner has always fascinated me because it was so brutal. Charles Sumner almost died. Of course, you lived in D.C. for a while, so you know there's Sumner School, and nobody mm -hmm. bothered to explain to us growing up why Sumner School was so important. Mom would just say, well, Sumner was important. Okay, thanks, Mom. Right. <laughs> so it's so your family was enslaved by Preston Brooks's sister? Is that what I heard you say? No, my family was enslaved by Preston Brooks. By Preston Brooks, wow. By his father. My great-great-grandmother was actually his daughter what wow was, was, was what Preston's father's it was Preston father's daughter so Preston was my my is my uncle he's wow yeah what? I connect like that and um to carry yeah yeah it's a lot but that's a lot. yeah that's it's a lot. lot but that's what I mean by I can't like I they they fight in my mm -hmm. head they yeah, go yeah. through all that so I definitely agree with you with the call as far as the ancestors are concerned. I listen to them, but sometimes I have to shut them down because if I don't, they will take over and turn me into a straight nut. Yeah, I get it. Wow. <laughs> so 
a question that I didn't get an opportunity to ask last week, and a lot of people gave feedback, you know, that is a question that they like me to ask, and you guys are perfect for this. What two, you know, two or more people who share this kind of common history, meaning each other, you can imagine a lot of things are kind of going through people's minds, trying to envision what it's even like. So starting with you, Penny, what advice or what suggestions would you give people who, you know, again, descendants of enslavers and the people that that family enslaved, what advice would you give them about even just tentatively reaching out to each other online? Well, Brian, I think um, there's a certain amount of preparation that someone needs to do. Um, so one thing that we've, in a sense, been touching on already is to be prepared for any number of reactions. So someone you're connected to through slavery might be really interested to hear from you. Maybe they're hopeful that you can share research and clear things up but they might also be someone who's been carrying a really painful heritage and um, feels angry and actually is not interested in making the connection. And, and that can go in either direction. Descendants of enslavers can be angry. There's a lot of shame and guilt for white folks. And um, so if I'm the person reaching out, it's important that I've done some work with myself to get past my feelings. I'm not reaching out in order to dump a whole lot of my feelings on someone I've never met before. That's just not fair. So I need to get myself figured out a bit and it's, I, I think of it as a very Zen exercise. You reach out, you make your, perhaps you offer some information or um, you indicate you have a little bit of shared history and then you let go of the outcome. It's up to the other person to respond as they wish. And sometimes the anxiety I've been researching and I've been really wanting to reach this person and they're not answering me and I'm going to go try to make them answer. It's like, no, 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 no. Settle down. If the answer is supposed to come back, it will come back. Don't just be chill about it. Um, and then uh, in the case of family, not, there are people that I've reached out to and I'm pretty sure we're cousins, but that's not the place I'm going to start with with them unless I get the reaction that they're feeling comfortable, that they're open to claiming a DNA relationship right off the bat. And we may or may not be cousins that throw our arms around each other. We may or may not be cousins that go out for a meal together. So it's staying very in the moment, really listening, really feeling the vibe and being okay with whatever that turns out to be. Um, not trying to force anything. Mm -hmm. So those are a couple of my thoughts. And Gail, I'm gonna to come to you in just a minute. I'm gonna ask the same two questions to you, but staying with you for a minute, Penny. Um, through your coming to the table um, experience, what do you, what are some of the general kind of motivations behind people to, to actually reach out in this manner? Um, there's a strong motivation having to do with genealogy and family history and just wanting to have the whole picture. So I've, you know, perhaps I, I've done research about my ancestors, but I know there's this whole other dimension to their lives that involves either people they enslaved or people who enslaved their ancestors. So that's one piece. Um, curiosity, who, who are these people I'm connected to? What are they like? What will that explain to me about me and my people? Um, and um, certainly on the part of white folks, some people reach out because they feel 
they should be somehow making amends, um, looking for a way to do restorative action, mm -hmm. um, delivering an apology if that turns out to be the right thing. So they're trying to repair harm. And sorry, I keep I call you Penny and you are Prinny. <laughs> sorry about that. Sure. <laughs> and Gail, from your experience, um, and how what suggestions would you make to people who who are considering re making that tentative kind of reaching out? Well, let's see. What would I suggest? Um, I agree with what Prinny said about expectations. Um, don't have any uh, because one can't be sure what the response is going to be. I, I have been fortunate in that when I began reaching out, it was a, an intellectual exercise. I wasn't looking for an emotional connection. I was trying to determine if the family lore, the oral history was correct. <clears throat> Excuse me. And my initial connection was with uh, a young woman who was a, a writer, as I am. She writes poetry. She's a journalist. She lives 3,000 miles away, and she wrote a, a book of poetry that was I learned about on the internet, and I reached out to her. And we had the same um, family name, which is Taylor. And I wrote to her that um, we likely shared ancestors. However, mine didn't exactly come through the front door and the plot thickens. And so she responded to me um, readily. And it is through her that I confirmed through DNA the connection to Thomas Jefferson. So because I, I think because I wasn't expecting a familial um, relationship, it was um, purely having to do with um, genealogy and proving the oral history um, I wasn't looking for family. I, I wasn't looking for, um, I just wasn't looking for a relationship. I wasn't looking for healing. I wasn't looking for recovery. I was looking for the truth. I just wanted the truth. Um, so I would recommend that people enter such potential relationships um, without expectations but without judgment as well. And that's the hard part. I think that's the hard part. Um, it's easy for, a, it's really easy for a black person, I think, it's really totally my opinion, to blame, um, to cast aspersions, to, um, to be critical. And I think it's super hard for us not to judge, but to listen as much as we can um, and to understand that the white person that we might be trying to connect with for whatever purpose might have guilt. And if you have a message that you wanna to convey to that person, it's not going to help if you will contribute to their guilt and will not help any healing process if that's what you want. Right. Just compound it um, if you lay guilt on people. So I, I try not to do that, but I also try to be very, very, very honest. And I don't think it's for too long, Black people have felt it was their burden. Um, and it's slavery was our burden. That's how I grew up. So we didn't talk about it. And slavery is not our burden. It's not our burden. Um, that we are descended from enslaved people is a testament to how strong we are, not to how weak <laughs> we are, it's just the opposite. And so um, so I think it's kind of, I think these are tough conversations to have, but if, you're expect if you don't have any expectations, then you won't be disappointed, will you? Yeah, I Absolutely. mean, I think I, like I agree. It's also ahead, worth Mark. bearing in mind that just because we're kind of mentally prepped and ready to make that move, the person on the other end that we're reaching out to, may, they may not be there. And a lot of times what I include in my messages or my emails, you know, when I explain who I am, my connection, is to say, I fully appreciate this is coming out of the blue. You may not realize that your family had a connection to slavery, much less that you have people of color and Black people who are, you know, 
your cousins, but you know, when you're ready, if you're ready, I'm here. That makes sense. I, you know, and I just kind of leave it at that. Yeah. And Gail, as well, if you could talk a little bit about what you think, um, you don't necessarily have to say what your motivations were, but what you think descendants of enslaved people's motivations would be in terms of reaching out to descendants of the enslavers? So honestly, I, I, as a former journalist, I try really hard not to speak for how other people feel and other people's motivations. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know why other people reach out to descendants of those who enslaved their family. Um, in my case, if I were not um, interested in the Jefferson connection and this oral history, which absolutely fascinated me, if I weren't trying to put some of the familial losses I had on the side of my family that were black and not white, um, I don't know that I would have pursued it. I have not been nearly as aggressive in pursuing the, my mom's side of the family. Um, so I, I don't know that I would want to connect. If it weren't Thomas Jefferson, I don't know that I would want to connect with um, descendants of those who enslaved my family. I don't know. I, listen, sometimes I'm on the, that mountain and I feel very, very resentful of not the people who enslaved my family, but of, of the descendants, but of the people who actually enslaved them. Very resentful. So I, I don't know how I, I don't know how other people feel about it or why, what their motivations are. I only understand mine. That leads me to a question. Um, so when you when you made the comment when you said you know you don't know the motivation and all that other stuff, it made me think of the fact that you how you're very passionate about what you're. You can hear the passion in in your you know in your tone, and you said you don't search your mom's side as much as you do your father's side. Do you think that? It makes a difference because we did not learn about our heritage to, in search of a better word, in school. That because once you found out you were connected to somebody that everybody learned about in school, you were so much into actually learning who Thomas Jefferson was and how you connected to him. I think that's a very um, acute observation. Um, yes, Jefferson has a lot to do with why I was so fascinated and drawn to this story. Um, when I was a kid, when I first learned the story, Thomas Jefferson was my favorite founding father because what I knew of him was that he wrote the Declaration of Independence. What I knew of him was on July 4th, we celebrated America and get, becoming a free country. And, um, and the colonies becoming states and, and the nation becoming a republic. That's what I knew of Thomas Jefferson. I knew that Thomas Jefferson was a brilliant writer. And even at, as a child, I considered myself a competent writer, a good writer. I knew my dad was a good writer. So all these things drew me to this history. Um, and in fairness to my mom's side of the family, you know, you hit a brick wall. Most of us hit a brick wall at 1870. We can't get past it. I've gotten a little bit beyond that with my mom's side of the family. But the, the, draw, the draw has definitely been the losses my dad experienced in his family, the anguish and pain my dad felt that he passed on to me, and the desire to make my dad whole by pursuing this and putting these pieces together so that I could give him this gift of understanding who his family was. So, I, I mean, it's undeniable that Jefferson was a draw here. Um, and, but the added value to all of this, to trying to put this puzzle together with Jefferson has been finding my father's family, my quest. Not only did I prove that Jefferson was the ancestor, I found these extraordinary black people he inspired and I get to tell their story. And on top of that, I found the black family that my dad lost because of his childhood losses. So it's been an extraordinary experience. I, I, I have connected. It's not that one side of the family is more important than the other. That's not fair. It's just as a black person, I feel drawn to the blacks I have met as a result of this more than the whites. 
Quinny and I have an exceptional relationship. Um, but I don't have that exceptional relationship with most of the people Everybody. on the side of the family. Right. Black side of the family that I just discovered, it's as if we've known each other forever. Right. Yeah. So, Prinny, same question. I mean, with, given the fact, same question, but in a, in a different way. Given the fact that the, the history is taught in school based on European research and what we know European, you know, as far as European research is concerned, what made you found coming to the table to bring the black and white families together? Because we don't know our history until we actually go out and search it. We have to literally go and search it. Whereas in school, you're learning right away. This is more than likely somewhere down the line i'm i'm connect i may be connected to this founding father somewhere down the line i may be connected to this founding mother you know it's 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 easy so what made you say okay you know what i want to make this a little bit better for my families my other families and what made you do that well it actually started very early in my life and i'm not sure how this came about but my grandmother, a Jefferson descendant, was very proud of her heritage and talked about it a lot and took us all to Charlottesville every year for the family association meetings, which when I was small were beyond boring. And I remember being shooed outside to play with the other kids during one of the business meeting sessions. And thinking, you know, grandma says we're related to half the people in Virginia, <laughs> but grandma means half the white people in Virginia. She probably means half the better half as well, knowing grandma. And, but, but these people own, these ancestors she's referring to, they own slaves. I'll bet we're related to half the black people in Virginia too. And then it was like, and don't say that to grandma. Um, wow. And then I thought, I wonder what it would be like if I could find some of those descendants of the slaves and bring them here to one of these family association meetings. Boy, I'll bet that would stir things up. That idea kept me entertained for the rest of that particular trip to, my, to Charlottesville. Um, and I didn't give it much thought for a long time afterward. And then lo and behold, the Hemings showed up on their own to one of the family association meetings. And I'm like, well, look at that. I don't even have to go find them. They're here and I get to meet them and get wow. acquainted with them. And um, it was all at personal relationships at that point, meeting people I really liked and that my childhood self had been longing to find because I thought that must be the whole truth, you know, that grandma had half the truth and I wanted the whole truth. The whole truth. That's beautiful. Okay. And um, as a result of that first interaction between the White Jeffersons and the Hemings Jeffersons, which was indeed <laughs> caused a lot of hullabaloo, um, I led a committee to put together the Monticello Community Gathering in 2007. We had 250 people come, 200 of whom were African-American and 50 European-Americans. And um, somewhere through that weekend, I suddenly went, oh, this is what I imagined doing when I was 10 or 11 years old. This wow. is what I envisioned. We are it, we are here, but it is not the hullabaloo that had been six or seven years before. This was a weekend of people really interested in each other's history, interested in family trees, photographs, stories, and just enjoying eating together and worshiping together and learning some of our shared history together. So it was my dream, uh, you know, plus so much more. That's awesome. And then coming to the table was a way to uh, formalize continuing yeah. to do that and help other people achieve that for themselves. 
Okay. You, you, used, you used a beautiful word, pretty hullabaloo. <laughs> because I can imagine, because, you know, you and Gail, you know, you're speaking from two different sides of the same family. Mm. And I can imagine that when the Hemings first showed up to that family association, or when any Black person or person of color is contacting a, a white relation, to that, you know, through the slavery link, people are assuming that you're taking an assault on the reputation of that ancestor. And that's not necessarily, that's not the case. I would imagine, well, again, I'm going to say what, repeat what Gail said. I can only speak for my own motivations. And I can speak about Donnie, and you, know, you can speak for yourself as well. That's never our intentions. We want, yeah. to, get, we want to get the facts. We want, you know, if the family has records, probate records, wills, estate records, land deeds, all that kind of thing, that helps us in our research. The furthest thing in my mind is, to launch an assault on someone's reputation. Right. But I mean, it actually, it actually helps what, what Gail was saying about her mother's side and how she can't get past that brick wall. Yeah. That those, those papers, those things that we're, we're looking for, what we're trying to do is to help us get past that 1870 brick wall. It's within those, it's within that, it's within the stuff that you guys have or what have you. And um, yeah, I agree with you, Brian, most definitely. Well, I don't know if we're gonna have to come out of it with an answer to this question, but is there a way that you can either approach, uh, again, a descendant of an enslaver or people that you find out that you're related to in a way that they don't feel as though you're attacking the reputation of that ancestor? Is there a way? that you can contact them without it sounding like you're attacking the reputation of that ancestor. Just because I'm thinking with Thomas Jefferson in particular, his surviving daughter did such a wonderful job spinning this kind of mythology around Fairy him. That it didn't leave room for the Hemings within that mythology about Thomas Jefferson. Do you think that's the, that would be a fair, that's a fair comment to make? And it's not by any means limited to um, Ellen Coolidge, who was the primary mythmaker. Um, it's the entire country <laughs> has a myth about founding fathers. You know, one of the things that's so fascinating about Hamilton is that it rounds out the person well the work that we've been doing with the history of monticello the history of jefferson rounds out who this person was and makes it really interesting here's this guy who wrote the declaration of independence without giving any credit to the enslaved people who supported him while he did that had they not been there there would not have been a declaration and all men are created equal, except the ones that aren't, that I own, and so on. You know, so who was this guy that could live that way and think those thoughts and write those words at the same time? What is the character makeup of that kind of person? That's a really fascinating, much more interesting than that, you know, handsome stone figure in the middle of the um, Jefferson Memorial in DC and all those wonderful words carved on the, the wall. You know, Dr. Joy DeGru made a comment when she did one of her, um, when she was talking about uh, epigenetics and, and just uh, the PTSD, post-traumatic slave uh, syndrome. And she, she did a lot of quotes from Thomas Jefferson. And one of them, one quote, I can't remember the quote right away, right off the top of my head, but the quote itself literally pointed at his confusion. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. in one way, he was this man who wrote the declaration, seems like he had some type of care towards Black people in one way or another, but in the same instance, he really didn't care for them. It was like a, it was it was like a contradiction of himself in this in this quote that she had done. So to hear you say, 
was trying to figure out like who this man really was is very, very interesting to me because it it goes right back into that particular. And I'll, I'll get that video and I'll share it with you guys later as to where she says, shows this quote about how he makes this one statement, this really not really nice statement about black people, but then he still... So Jefferson, notes on the state of Virginia, the only book that Jefferson wrote, he said the most abhorrent things about black people. Yeah. Their intellect, about their um, um, hygiene, about um, uh, their limitations, their lack of imagination, uh, liken them to to beasts. I mean, it it was just horrific and disgusting. Yeah. Things, I mean, when I read that, and remember now, Thomas Jefferson was for me a hero. So when I read that, I, it made me feel sick to my stomach. Um, if anybody had written that, it would have made me feel sick to my stomach. He was a very complex man um, who was could be very pragmatic about his business and who treated enslaved people like cogs in a wheel. Uh, you know, they weren't factory workers, they were at the factory. They were the tools um, on the one hand. On the other hand, with the Hemings family, um, he treated the Hemings family with a a, a level of compassion. Um, Six were freed in his will. Um, He kept his word to Sally Hemings. They had an arrangement. She negotiated with him the freedom of their children. And she was in Paris with him. He was minister there. And in fact, the four children, four surviving children they had, were freed. So, uh, I mean, Prinny's right. He's not a stone person. He is a complex, nuanced person. Um, he should not be on a pest- pedestal because what human beings should be. And um, and I don't think that we could ever really get into his mind or his motivations, but we can look at his actions. And, and while in fact he did free many Hemingses, um, most of the people Jefferson enslaved were not free. He sold some at his convenience. Um, my three times great grandfather, Peter Hemings, was sold along with some 130 others after Jefferson died in 1826 on July 4th. So we're, we're not here to condemn Jefferson or any, any of the founders. We are here to be honest about who they were and what they did. And quite frankly, the harm that they caused the country. We are still living with the consequences of those decisions today. Most um, Thomas Jefferson had a lot of what we call now social equity. <laughs> he could have made a huge difference, but it was inconvenient for him to do so. Jefferson, who was the small R Republican, lived on that mountain like a prince. I mean, he was when he was broke, he was still importing wine from Europe. He lived extraordinarily well. He died what would be considered today millions of dollars in debt, but he could still keep getting credit because he, you know, he's Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> so, I mean, history is not clean. It's relationships are not clean. It's all very complicated. And we have to work hard at looking at it that way. And you asked about how to approach people. Well, you know, I don't approach pretty any differently than I would approach anybody. Prinny's a human being. She's white. She's my cousin. Um, we've built a relationship and I appreciate the relationship. And I, um, I mean, why would I approach her in any way that's different than I would approach somebody else? Except we have this familial connection. And if I could just add this, because if I don't, my mother who's in heaven or whatever comes after people are gone from this earth, I am committed to pursuing my mother's side of the family because if I don't, when I see her in the afterlife, she will not speak to me. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. And I don't want anybody to think that I was trying to bring down what Jefferson did. I just found it to be very interesting as far as the the complex that Mm -hmm. Prenny was was discussing because you actually do see from looking at what he did say and then looking at how he did treat another, you're looking at the confusion in him. 
it, it was con- you can see that confusion. So that's what I was pointing because I feel the same way. I mean, as far as like I was talking about with Preston Brooks is concerned, I I feel like I'm supposed to hate him, but I cannot. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm unable to, and mm-hmm. and that's not something that I can do because I actually understood where his line was and what it was. For every fight that he ever got into, and he got into a lot of them, <laughs> he got into a lot, they were all about family. So he was a family he man. I mean, his brother, when he, he was Charles Sumner. <laughs> he was a family man. That was what it was. Charles Sumner made a statement in, a, in the Kansas Nebraska Act that talked about his uncle and his state. And that's why he beat him up. That's what he did. So it was always about family for him. And he felt like he was right. And there was nothing wrong with him being right about protecting his family. So technically, if I look at it in a in that mindset and that mindset only, not thinking about the fact that my great great grandmother was enslaved or that she was her children were sold by their own grandfather or that or any of those different things, not looking at all of those things, just understanding the overall perspective of who he was as a person and why he did what he did. I can't be mad at him because I'm going to protect mine too. That's fascinating. I'll protect mine with everything in me, no matter what it is. So looking at Thomas Jefferson, it had to be, one of the hardest things for him in the world to be like, oh, I feel this way about black people. I feel that way. I feel all this negative stuff. And then he turns around and has the audacity to actually fall in love with one. Well, I don't want to jump. Well, I don't say, I'm don't a, I'm a, over there. Okay, <laughs> no, don't say fall in love, but. Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, well, don't say fall in love, but to be to the point where he would have multiple children by her. And be to the point where he's going to make sure that those children are taken care of to a certain degree, or at least letting them be free and do what they, you know, whatever it was he did for them, it wasn't what he was going to do for the other ones. Now, this is where he's really interesting, because just picking up on what Donia said, because it is interesting. He allowed his children to walk off the plantation and not chase them. That's kind of what he did. (laughs) So it's what he did with two of them. He 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 sent Harriet up with a few dollars first to Philadelphia. She ended up in Washington and Beverly. Um, You know what happened to Beverly? I know he was Beverly strolled. He was seen with a balloon in Richmond at one point, um, a hot air balloon, because he was a scientist Mm -hmm. and a tinkerer like his dad. But um, but Madison never revealed what happened to Beverly and. Um, um, Harriet, because they passed into the white world. So right. we don't, still to this day, we don't know what happened to them. But so two do you guys probably the both ended up in DC. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's right. Thank you, Pretty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ma- so do you, so out, out of the three of you, out of the three of you, do you guys have DNA matches to those that crossed over? I don't know if they're DNA tested, to be honest with you. And even if they did, they changed their names. So it, whatever name they would pop up under probably wouldn't be meaningful to me. I would have to see other Hemming DNA uh, known ones to, to ferret that one out. Okay. Well, and also for some of, of our cousins who have family members that pass into white society, they one generation would not tell the next generation. So the next generation wouldn't even realize what their roots were. That's not always the case, but in some parts of the family, it has been the case. So those descendants of Beverly and Harriet might have no idea. Mm -hmm. Wow. There's an interesting story though. Pretty, you know this one. Um, there's a, a, a picture, you can see it at Monticello.org, of this very elegant looking family. There are lots of them. And it's a portrait that hung in one family for years and years and years, a black family. And it hung in another family for years and years. And, and they are 
white. I mean, they're white. And they didn't know that they were descendants from the Hemings um, Jefferson liaison. They, the white, black family knew, but the white family didn't know because they were told that their ancestors were Irish. And so it came to light, it's a long story about how it came to light, but it came to light in part because of the work that Monticello has done over the years with our, um, our um, oral history project called the African-American Getting Word Oral History Project. And through that, these people found out that they were related and the dis white descendants found out that they're in fact related to Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings through generations with many generations in between. So it's been kind of fascinating. One of them, from the white side came to visit Monticello a couple of years ago. And she's still ha having some difficulty acknowledging that, you know, she's got that one drop and this is her <laughs> black family as well. So, I mean, the stories are so fascinating and so complex, but I'm still drawn to this Preston Brooks thing. And I really want to talk more when you get a chance offline, Danya, about, okay. about Preston Brooks um, and about your inability to hate him because I think that, yes, I re remember reading that he was defending um, a family member, um, but I have not been able to forgive him for what he did to Charles Sumner. So I forgive him. I mean, I forgive him what he did. I mean, he's a, okay, I'm going to say this. He's a bastard. Yeah. Without, from, from the, from the high hills, he's, he's a bastard, but, um, Everything he did, he thought he was doing it at the best for his family. Every decision that he made, he did them because it was according to protecting his family. He had everything to do with protecting his family. He believed so strongly, I guess from all of the the um the, the speeches that I've read from him, I learned that every move that he has ever made has always been family oriented every mm -hmm. move so because his moves were in that manner when he made a comment at one point about how he want how he wanted to step away from the constitution he felt like he could step on it he says he's been a disunionist from the moment he walked you know he took breath he said that those were his words. I've been a disunionist for a moment. I took breath. Within that, within that speech, he was telling you how slavery feeds my children, puts clothes on their back, puts them through school. Everything about slavery had everything to do with his family. And if you take that from my, me, you're taking that from my family. And what are they going to do? Hmm. It was a family. People in an inhumane way. I just. It's just, it's fascinating. I, I, I'd love to talk more about that. Okay, there's we another, can. There's another aspect from Preston. You can never divorce him from the community that he was born and raised in. Yes. Yeah. In South Carolina. It was family orientated. It was violent mm -hmm. to a degree. It was like the Wild West. It was the Wild West. Forget <laughs> that. Not like it was. It was. <laughs> So I mean, I mean, yeah, I have you. You gotta. I have to separate. You have to separate in order to move forward and understand. That's that's what I, I needed to do. I mean, everybody has their own way of of dealing and coping. I want to meet the Brooks descendants. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to, but I want I want to meet the Brooks descendants because. <laughs> Huh? Why? Why do you want to meet them? What is I your think we, we, well, first of all, we're family, first and foremost. I'm family oriented. And are you family though, or are you related? There's a difference. No, we're family. That's that's how I look at it. We're family. I have very similar things just like him. There have been times that I've made I literally made a statement to someone that he said hundreds of years ago. I said it to them. And when I found that in the speech, I was like, oh, oh, my God, I am just like this man. What was the statement? Oh, I told. Uh, OK, so I'm, <laughs> I told him I basically I told him, well, he got into this argument with Thomas Wigfall. That was his his famous long story short. That was his famous um, duel. 
with Thomas Wigfall. But they got into this, what led up to that duel is an argument that happened back and forth between Wigfall and his father. And Preston jumped in it because Wigfall was in an argument with his daddy. So yet again, another family-oriented thing. And finally, this argument was going back and forth in the paper. So finally, within the paper, he actually came out to him and he told him, he said, listen, you're, you're signing in anonymously. You're writing these letters anonymously, which was what Wigfall <clears throat> was doing. Preston said, my name is Preston Brooks. I live at such and such and such place. If you got an issue, come and see me. Basically, that's what he said. I said that exact thing to somebody one time. I don't have time to be playing games with you. I live here. You know my name. You know where I live. I live here. If you got an issue, come see me. And when I saw that particular thing, and I was like, oh, my God, I said this. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't believe I said the exact same thing over 100 years later. I have his attitude. I have that overall, I'm going to protect mine first, and then you, then we'll deal with other stuff later. I'm going to protect, but right now, I'm going to protect mine. We're family. We do the same thing. And, and then we come across that way. Now, whether or not we act the way a family should act, what family does nowadays? They don't, they don't do the things that they should do in most instances. You know, reunions are broken up. Things don't happen the way they do. And if you do have a reunion, it's only so many people that come or it's only the click that happens, that, that happens to show up. There's so much into it. My goal as a genealogist is to cut the clicks. Your family, you need to accept it and move forward. Now, if you don't like each other and you can't deal with it, then that's fine. I understand. But at least give each other that opportunity and that chance. I believe that genealogists can heal the world. That's my goal. That's my th thought. All right. Well, I guess I'm coming at it, coming at it for, the, for the same thing and saying it slightly differently, differently than Donia did. Meeting my white family members, relations, um, and you're right, Gail. I mean, at first they were, they were contacts, you know, and we met each other and the, those meetings went really well. Um, and then we actually became family. We're, you know, we are, we are each other's family now. But the, the positive thing for me was actually when they got talking about the family culture and all that kind of family, you know, the, the other parts of family DNA, I recognized so much of those four, four families I'm thinking of specifically on my dad's side, really kind of explain the character of my family. Mm -hmm. I could actually see myself um, in, in what they were saying. And that kind of, it filled in questions it gave answers to questions I didn't even didn't even know I had at the time. Why does my family believe this? Why do we grow up doing this? All that kind of stuff. Oh, that's why. It's kind of like it's kind of like a family trait thing. And for me, that that was a really powerful experience. Um, now I'm going to say for you, again, having been to Monticello, it I can't describe the feeling. And for those for people in the audience who've never been to Monticello, you have the African, you have the slave burial ground. And then you, you stand in such a way and you look up this hill, there's the white burial ground. And you know that you've got family in both of those places. And the, the mm. black slave burial ground, there are no headstones. You're, if you're, I think if they were lucky, they had a rock. There were a couple of rocks and we kind of knew that those roughly marked where the, where the graves were. But that's like, and again, both of you can feel free to jump in. For me, that was just such a surreal experience, actually standing between the two the, the two graveyards and just noting and marking the stark contrast in the actual burials themselves. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, Ryan. I spend a great deal of time in my book talking about that very thing. I spend a lot of time <clears throat> at both grave sites because I do have family buried above. Um, these are uh, pretty, we really, I wish we had more time because these, this story is really very complicated having to do with the Monticello Association, uh, which Prunny is a member, although, and I am not, even though um, we share the same white ancestry. <clears throat> it's only those white ancestors, um, those descendants of Thomas Jefferson and Martha 
um, whales, skeleton, um, and the Epps family, of course, who can be buried at that gravesite and their um, spouses, the spouse, with extended spouses. The Hemings family, as of yet, is not welcome in the Monticello Association or in that white gravesite. Um, and I have gone to both sites because my ancestors are buried at both. And as I referred earlier, I feel called by my ancestors. But honestly, when I need solace, when I'm hurting, when I have pain, um, when my job feels hard because I'm talking about very tough subjects, it is at that gravesite at the bottom of the mountain, not at the top, where I go and find peace and where I feel overwhelmingly connected. I don't know how you feel, Prinny, because you've done so much great work. Um, but um, I, I feel at home at the bottom of that mountain um, when I need support. <clears throat> I also need to say this, the, the stark contrast between the two hmm. really speaks to how the enslaved and black people have been treated and perceived in the United States of America for more than 400 years now. And the white privilege of those people. And I mean, what could be more symbolic than one family being at the top and the other family being at the bottom. Um, but to Monticello's credit, and Monticello and the Thomas Jefferson Foundation are quite separate from Monticello and the plantation that was once owned by Jefferson and later on by the um, Levy family. Mon Mon and the gravesite at the top of the mountain is not owned by the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, but owned by the Monticello Association. So we are restoring that space down at the bottom of the mountain where the enslaved are buried so that it is um, treated as a, a sacred ground in a protected space. And that's something that's coming in the near future. Um, and we are the association, the, I'm sorry, that's wrong. The Thomas Jefferson Foundation is committed to honoring the enslaved and giving parity to the enslaved. So when you come to Monticello now, and pretty, you've contributed to this, you're going to hear as much about Thomas Jefferson and the enslaved, because as Prinny said earlier, without the enslaved people, you don't have a Declaration of Independence. You don't have the World Heritage Site that is the building of Monticello. You don't have Thomas Jefferson. You don't have those things. The enslaved made his life possible. So the, those people buried there at the bottom of the mountain are just as important as the people buried at the top. And Monticello, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation is recognizing that by caring for that place and making it sacred. Thank you. I am afraid we are, have actually gone over time. Oh, I don't want the last word. Somebody else needs to have the last word. <laughs> um, thank you both. Thank you, Prinny, and thank you, Gail, for um, so generously sharing your time with us this Sunday. Thank you to our audience at home. And just a quick note that next week we're going to be researching our show is going to be about researching Buffalo Soldiers with Desmond Bertrand Pitts. And we'll be here at four o'clock on Sunday. Look forward Ladies, to Ladies, stay on. Don't hang up. And Brian, just quickly, if folks want support doing their research for whichever side of the linked connection they're looking at, you can find the Linked Descendants Working Group on the comingtothetable.org website and we that we exist to support folks doing that work well, and we yep. will add we'll add a link to that too yeah you. you're very very welcome so again i'm brian Sheffy, and i'm donya williams and you guys have an awesome evening sunday evening <laughs>